0: This is Purple Radio On Demand.
1: We are absolutely shaped by debates in the present.
0: I would definitely echo your call for a much more historical awareness of political science. To understand politics, and really to understand any subject, you need to know the history.
2: Hello and welcome to Dead Current, a podcast by History and Politics, where we look at current affairs through the lens of history. My name is Emily Glynn.
0: And I'm Anna Shepherd. Today we are looking at the changing position of journalism and free speech, the state of Middle Eastern politics and how it has been impressed by the past, and finally we will discuss the current peace process in Afghanistan and if it bears similarity to any historical precedents. We are delighted to be joined by Rory McCarthy, Assistant Professor in Politics and Islam at the School of Government and International Affairs here at Durham
2: University. Thank you for joining us, how are you today Rory?
1: Thanks very much for having me, I'm very well looking forward to this.
2: Your experience as a journalist with The Guardian in the Middle East is particularly impressive and one of the main reasons that uh, it was great to get you on the podcast today. From your own personal experiences, given the history and current political climate in the Middle East, what risks do you think a journalist trying to report the truth can face there?
1: So I have quite an unusual, I took quite an unusual path into academia, because after I did my undergraduate degree, I became a journalist and I spent more than 10 years living in the Middle East. I was a correspondent with The Guardian and I covered conflicts in Afghanistan. I lived in Iraq for a couple of years and then I lived in Beirut and eventually in Jerusalem for four years. So a lot of the work I did was in what you would call a conflict environment. And so, yeah, there were particular challenges involved there, mostly kind of logistical or safety challenges, I don't think I really faced too much of a difficulty in terms of whether I was free to report what I wanted. I mean, I think that the people who face the biggest challenges in trying to either speak freely about political issues or to write freely about them in social media or in newspapers are the people who live in the region, right? So I think we often consider that free speech in the west is quite open at the moment quite broad but if you were living in the middle east at the moment you'd have a completely different conception of that so lots of journalists in turkey for example um have been arrested or have lost their jobs because of the way they've expressed their political views lots of activists in Places like Saudi Arabia, obviously, have been jailed for their political views. But even in countries that we might consider more moderate, countries like Morocco, for example, activists are still being jailed for expressing their political views. So when I lived in the Middle East as a foreign correspondent, I was enormously privileged. I had the sort of weight and influence of a major newspaper behind me. I also had the possibility of, you know, kind of leaving and going home if things ever got difficult. But for those people who are, who are from the region, living and working in the region, the kind of complexities and challenges they face are much more serious.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So speaking more specifically on the role of journalists in conflict, I've recently read Kate 80s autobiography on her experiences as a journalist in conflict, and one significant insight she made was that there is an assumption by the public that journalists in these scenarios are safe and can narrate these situations from a point of neutrality. KAD herself disagrees with this assumption and instead says that she feels the role of the journalist is becoming more dangerous as they're perceived as an increasingly active part of war. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this.
1: Yeah that's very interesting. I think that that sort of suggests we should pay attention to how battlefields operate right. I think we traditionally have an idea that a war is fought between two kind of opposing forces on some kind of some kind of battle space that is, that is outside an area where civilians live, but the characteristics of modern warfare are not like that at all. So the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq are very much urban insurgencies fought against, you know, kind of major, la, major powers, large traditional armies with, with uh, fighter jets, uh, with uh, tanks and with armored personnel carriers. And what happens in those situations is that civilians find themselves living in the middle of a battlefield. And it also impacts the way journalists can operate too because they very quickly find themselves also living and working in what has become a battlefield. And they are often targeted because because of the reporting that they do because it shines a light on perhaps accounts of the war that we don't always hear back at home in the West. So I lived in Baghdad for a couple of years um and at at the beginning when the insurgency was just in its early days uh, my ability to travel around the country was quite broad i could go more or less wherever i wanted but as the insurgency grew and developed it became apparent that they were targeting journalists just as much as they were targeting iraqi troops and american or british troops to the extent that journalists were Uh, kidnapped, just leaving the hotel that we were all living in, um, just kind of going about their daily business, either of reporting or of trying to live their lives. So you felt the sense that the front line that we, I think we often understand as being in some kind of distant place, the front line was actually in the very heart of the cities that we were living in, but also, of course, that the Iraqis themselves were living in and working in and trying to educate their children in and trying to do their weekly shopping in and all that.
2: And I assume as a journalist for The Guardian, your audience was primarily here in the UK. Um, So if I could bring uh, the attention back towards the UK, most would argue that the success of a society can be measured in part by its proximity to the idea of free speech. And obviously there is much polarity within journalism, seen recently with the uh, New York Times Uh, Editor who sacked over a particularly contentious article. As a society, do you think we are moving closer towards the idea of achieving total free
1: speech? I think internet access has meant that speech has now become much freer than it has ever been before. And perhaps today, speech, certainly in the West, has never been more free and unregulated. I think the problem in the West is not that free speech is too limited the problem is what we are doing with the free speech that we have and if you look at social media in particular you see a real polarization of political debate and what I perceive as a real increase in objectionable speech intolerance bigotry particularly targeting race and gender and when you look at social media today it's hard not to be overwhelmed sometimes by the extent of personal abuse that we see, especially directed at women and at minorities. And I wonder if if the media has not in part encouraged this kind of polarization because it invites guests these days to kind of argue with each other, a sort of an attempt to generate controversy because perhaps it's perceived as being what a media organization ought to do. I find that quite troubling. Um, I think the question is whether we want freedom of speech to mean the right to speak without facing any consequence, or whether we should have the right to challenge objectionable speech, hate speech, much more forcefully, especially to challenge those with power who are using this kind of speech, right? Because there are always power dynamics involved in it.
0: So given your experience as a foreign correspondent for The Guardian, um, you're obviously gonna have a real a really big insight into how um, fake news affects sort of national discourses on certain topics. Um, do you think the idea of fake news
1: is particularly new? Um, I, I don't think it's new. I think what's that there is a particular change in the way politics works at the moment, right? That kind of creates the impression that there's something new and perhaps more pervasive about fake news at the moment, and that's the rise of populism right and I think populism and fake news are kind of very closely connected and I'm not just talking about Trump in the United States because we see populist movements across the world uh, at this moment which may be in part at least some kind of product of the financial crisis of the, of 2008 that's still sort of uh, playing out today. Um, so I think we I think fake news is probably something that we've had with us for some time but we just have we're paying more attention to it now it's become increasingly apparent to us at the moment the question is what we can do about it how we can uh, push back against this kind of fake news in a way that avoids setting too many constraints on our freedom of speech right because I think freedom of speech can be uh, a very important instrument particularly for groups that are without power for minority groups in order to press for their rights so how can we push back against this fake news in a way that kind of doesn't damage the most disadvantaged groups in our societies
2: i'm curious as well to kind of hear your thoughts on whether fake news has the possibility of um affecting history and disinformation around uh, the education of history
1: yeah i mean i think you see that especially in this country at the moment, questions of history have have become very uh, political right in this present moment. I'm just thinking about this debate on empire that we constantly hear about in British politics at the moment, the way some politicians use particular kind of invented traditions of empire to justify very contemporary political projects. So I'm not sure if the problem here is fake news as much as how we think about the work of the historian and how we think about uh, the importance of constantly debating with and challenging our perceived understandings of history that has been written right in other words our constant attempt to rewrite and re-debate history and particularly in the question of Britain's imperial legacy how we get beyond these very Kind of trite analyses of our imperial history that take this balance sheet approach that say well on the one hand we built railways or we abolished slavery and on the other hand bad things happened like you know massacres at amritsar question is how do we get beyond that and how do we start to think in a much more sophisticated way about the kind of the kind of relationship between the metropole between britain and its colonial Outposts and how the relationship between politics and ideas in those two places has worked together to generate the kind of concepts and politics that we live in today in the UK. I mean, if you look at this great new book that Priyamvada Gopal from Cambridge has written, *Insurgent Empire*, she's writing about exactly this, right—the relationship between anti-colonial resistance in the periphery and political dissent in the metropole. Trying to demonstrate that lines of influence actually go both ways. In other words, colonial subjects are, in their resistance to the colonial project, are reshaping ideas of freedom that exist in Britain itself. I think that's probably the most thoughtful and effective way to, to kind of tra- challenge these rather simplistic accounts of how history shapes politics.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember in a module in my first year, um, we touched on that slightly in um, a Victorian setting uh, when the empire was um, at its height then. And it's interesting that the same thing can really be seen now in many ways without the, the more formal label of empire. So focusing more closely again on how you said the relationship between um, politics and history and looking at politics through the lens of history, how far back into history do you um, do you look to inform your knowledge on current political climates, especially when you are um, reporting uh, as a journalist or when you did report as a journalist? Sorry.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think as journalists, we tended to have very short memories or if we did call on historical references, they were sort of cliched and and not very sophisticated or not very helpful. And I think sometimes in political science too, we tend to have quite short memories, Right? we tend to focus on identifying causal mechanisms to explain variations in outcome. But I mean, the work that I do, the research that I do, the teaching I do at Durham is all about the politics of the Middle East. And I think when you're uh, studying the politics of the Middle East, the past is especially the colonial past is just inescapably present. You cannot avoid it because in the Middle East, European powers for the large part determined how and and when states became independent. They often were involved in drawing borders, borders that tended to cut through ethnic groups so that some states didn't emerge, a Kurdish state, for example, a Palestinian state, of course. Uh, Colonial powers also determined the kind of political systems that emerged in these new Middle Eastern states in the early 20th century. So then the question is, <clears throat> how do we weigh this up? How much influence do these structural legacies still have today? And do these structural legacies outweigh the agency of contemporary political actors in places like the Middle East? So there's one really good example of this, which is a great book by a professor at the LSE called Toby Dodge, who wrote a book called Inventing Iraq, which was published just after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where he argues that the British mandate in Iraq, so that's in the early 20th century, profoundly shaped the modern Iraqi state that has since emerged. That it created a political culture that was highly reliant on uh, extreme levels of violence and coercion to the extent that Saddam Hussein, who is seen as this kind of archetypal, brutal ruler in the Middle East, was, he argues, a symptom and not a cause of Iraq's violent political culture. In other words, what he's saying is that the nature of Britain's mandate in Iraq still has, you know, very powerful effects right up until the present era.
0: So speaking of historical influence more broadly, Do you think it's possible to use history without distorting our present? And do you think using history can even destroy common sense?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, I think when we, every time we think about history or do work of historical research, I'm not actually technically a historian, the work I do is political science, but when we do historical research, I mean, we are absolutely shaped by debates in the present, right? That's what enables us to take a fresh view of historical problems that ask questions in a fresh way. And so, I mean, I think that relationship between the present and uh, historical problems of the past is sort of essential. I mean, that's what, that's what gives uh, history its vitality, right? That's what makes it such, a, such an exciting uh, discipline that still has profound relevance for how our societies operate today.
0: Certainly. So we were thinking we could delve into your more um, obviously personal experience of um, Middle Eastern politics, having written about it and lived in a lot of places in the Middle East. How easy do you think it is to adapt a West versus East mentality when discussing the state of politics globally today?
1: Yeah, it's still very present, right? I mean, remember when George Bush was preparing the US public for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, he was talking about this as a crusade, right? So clearly in the, uh, in the minds of politicians, these historic resonances are very much there, very much alive. The, the point is, how do we deal with this today, right? How do we kind of get beyond this sort of rather simplistic clash of civilizations that Huntington wrote about uh, in, I think, quite a problematic way? How do we understand a more dialectical relationship between um, the West and the global South? Um, Perhaps even more importantly, how do we approach this as scholars and researchers, right? How do we make sure that uh, we're not just reading from a very narrow kind of frame of reference? So how do we widen our readings? How do we rethink the syllabus that we're studying uh, or that we're teaching how do we draw on a wider range of sources what kind of scholars and scholarship are we engaging with are we really making an effort to to try to understand that our eurocentric view is often quite parochial right and that there is a kind of global there are global relationships out there that are that are absolutely essential and that we too often just can kind of completely overlook because we fail to acknowledge the biases and the assumptions that we each bring to our own work. I think this is really a problem in journalism, right? We just, there's not very much self-reflection about who is doing the writing and what position they are writing from. I think academia is better at it because we are encouraged to be much more self-reflexive in our scholarly work. Um, I think the other problem of course is in our popular culture where we are just kind of overwhelmed with these very Orientalist uh, impressions, I think, of how the Middle East works in particular. There's a great um, set of very famous work by a scholar in the United States called Jack Shaheen, where he wrote these books called Real Bad Arabs and the TV Arab, where he tries to analyze just how Arabs have been portrayed in cinema since the early 20th century, And he basically concludes that Arabs are portrayed either as billionaires, bombers, or belly dancers. You know, in other words, this this very Orientalist approach of understanding Arabs or Muslims as inherently violent religious fanatics or as kind of eroticized women is still very present today. Just think about some of the criticisms of the TV series Homeland and how Arabs and Muslims are presented in that. I think this is a this is a problem that we're really wrestling with still.
2: I think you're absolutely right because when you touched on the curriculum, uh, as a history student I have never ever been taught Middle Eastern history at all. I think it's a massive gap and it's something I would want to know about to increase uh, knowledge around the Middle East as well.
1: Yeah I completely agree. Look I studied history as an undergraduate and I didn't do Middle Eastern history because it wasn't on offer. what I would say is that at Skia, the School of Government and International Affairs, we do have a lot of uh, modules on the Middle East, on the politics of the Middle East, the international relations on the Middle East. I teach a module on Muslims and politics in the modern world, which kind of reaches beyond the Middle East. So we do make a real effort to, to kind of challenge these, sometimes rather narrow uh, uh, views of, of what constitutes you know, a discipline. And I would really encourage you to kind of keep pushing uh with that argument because you will find that there are a lot of academics here who are very receptive and who really want to broaden the kind of offer that's that's presented to students
0: yeah definitely so you mentioned before about um president bush using rhetoric such as crusades and things like that and obviously when he did that um it was in response to a time of crisis do you think that this of falling into this sort of mindset like you say just resorting to stereotypes or things like that um do you think they're most poignant in times of crisis
1: i mean maybe we're most aware of them in times of crisis right because we are there's heightened attention um sometimes these influences become more explicit so particularly around the war in afghanistan and the war in iraq but but i mean i think the whole point about legacies of empire is that they are always with us even when we're not paying attention to them right and that it's not just about it's not just about how we think about particular events in the past it's absolutely about how we develop our knowledge today right the sources that we're using for our knowledge the constructions that we're using do we understand that knowledge and power have been historically intimately connected right this is the point that edward Said is making in orientalism right that the whole the whole background to the construction of a particular knowledge of the orient as this what he calls a kind of semi-mythical construct and other uh, is deeply connected to political practices of power right to the colonial experience so what i sense is that even when we are not in times of crisis or political emergency in the contemporary period, we are still absolutely shaped by these often quite problematic uh, constructions of knowledge such that you can sit down and watch a TV series like Homeland without really unless you're paying attention without really noticing the kind of levels of knowledge that are implicit in in some of the presentations on offer and it's absolutely beholden on us to you know pay attention to what we're looking at and to and to push back against it and to uh, force ourselves to think in a much more critical fashion about the kind of uh, news media that we are consuming or the kind of popular culture that we are consuming and indeed also at university as students and academics the kind of academic research that we are consuming but also constructing ourselves.
2: And when we talk about the Western popular imagination and stereotypes, another quite prominent um, concept is that the, our view of political movements in the Middle East is one that is relatively homogenous. Uh, and from your study of Islamist movements in Tunisia and the emphasis on their increasing diversification, do you think this mindset will change and people will develop a deeper understanding of Middle Eastern politics across the globe?
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think there's a big difference between the way the Middle East is understood in the popular imagination and the way scholars talk about and debate the region, right? Because there's been enormous progress in the way we understand the region, and you can't get away anymore with kind of quite simplistic, you know, Huntington type arguments. Um, So, the work that I've done on Islamists in Tunisia, I wrote my doctorate about the main Islamist movement in Tunisia, Enatta, and what's striking about the Ennahda movement is um is that it's it's kind of at one end of a very broad spectrum of islamist groups so think about islamists in the in the region as ranging from those who are kind of most extreme armed groups like isis and al-qaeda through to groups like the muslim brotherhood which are socially conservative but are ready to to take part in a democratic political process, to those groups right on the more democratic end, like the the movement in Tunisia, which is not just prepared to take part in a democratic political process, but as a result of that participation is completely rethinking what it means to be an Islamist movement in the contemporary period. And especially in the Arab world, that means in the post 2011 period. So in the years after the Arab uprisings of 2011, and what's striking about the Tunisian example is partly how the Islamists there are revising their, their vision, their political visions in quite a dramatic way, such that, for example, they no longer call themselves Islamists, they call themselves Muslim democrats. Um, secondly, just how difficult it is for them to do this, right? It's one thing to change your behavior in a way that means you're participating in a In a free and fair democratic system but it's much harder to change the kind of intellectual justification for your political project to go along with that so changing behavior is one thing but can you change ideas as well and then thirdly what what is the cost of doing this kind of strategic change because there's enormous debate and contestation within these movements right that often we don't even notice but if you look deep within the movements you see there's incredible friction within where they try to negotiate what a more kind of democratic um, future might look for them, what might it look like to be less like a religious social movement, which might be more concerned with preaching or with charitable activities, and to look more like a professional political party, which is much more concerned with uh, drawing up a policy program that appeals to the largest number of voters, Uh, trying to win elections, um, taking part in committees in parliament where you might have to work alongside non-Islamists, even secular politicians. Um, All of these things create these really fascinating debates and contests within movements that are not unique to Islamist movements, but they are particularly striking within Islamists.
0: Whilst writing
2: for The Guardian, you covered the war in Afghanistan. And of course, in February this year, a deal was signed between America and the Taliban with an agenda moving towards a lasting peace. And there's been great scepticism about how successful and sustainable a front of peace may be. Do you think now because the war is 18 years old, peace is harder to achieve when conflict is long?
1: I remember that um, as early as 2007, there were some very knowledgeable diplomats in Kabul who said we have to talk to the Taliban, we have to start negotiating with them and in fact two diplomats were expelled in 2007 for doing precisely that, for talking to the Taliban and yet here we are what 13 years later and talking to the Taliban is exactly what even the US government has been doing over the last year. Does a long war make it harder to reach a peace deal? I mean I would guess A long war does bring extra complications. I mean, there must be young soldiers on all sides in Afghanistan who have no memory of when the war started, which is an incredible thing. What's peculiar about Afghanistan is that levels of violence in the last year by both US forces and the Taliban were actually some of the highest that we've seen in the last 20 years. So what we've learned is that actually the Taliban which we thought of as a kind of fanatical ragtag militia has turned out to be incredibly tenacious, has run a very successful decentralized insurgency uh, where the leadership stayed behind in Pakistan with diplomatic cover from the government there, while kind of small cells were able to operate uh, their insurgency across the country. We've come to a peace deal because the Taliban has no clear path to victory, right? It has no real chance of capturing Kabul or capturing any of the major cities in the North. But then we've got this extraordinary peace deal, which to my mind looks incredibly fragile. First of all, it's a peace deal, not of all the parties in the conflict, just of the Americans and the Taliban, right? The deal is that the Americans will gradually Draw down their troops over the next several months. And in return, the Taliban is committed to stopping Afghanistan being used as a safe haven. But what kind of a peace deal is it that doesn't involve the Afghan government? So you still need to have some kind of power sharing arrangement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. The current peace deal does not include a ceasefire between the Afghan government and the Taliban. That seems to me hugely problematic. given that this war has been going on for so long, what will the Taliban demand in any future deal to kind of compensate for all of those years of fighting? Because in the last 20 years, um, there have been a lot of opportunities for urban Afghans, Afghans living in the cities, to to take advantage of some of this foreign aid that has come in, which has really changed the life of of the last generation. And this is something that the Taliban hasn't kind of had access to. So what kind of claims are they going to be making on, on any future deal? And what about women's rights in particular? Because that seems to me the sort of most of one of the most vulnerable issues here. There have been big advances in the last 20 years in terms of women's access to healthcare and to education or women's access to jobs in the civil service, uh, even women's access to uh, winning seats in parliament but women haven't been involved in these peace negotiations, right? And we know that the Taliban's ambition is still to install some kind of Islamic system, as they call it, in Afghanistan. So what are the costs, what are the sacrifices that are going to be made in this very kind of complex and what seems to me rather fragile peace deal?
0: You're speaking a lot about um, compromise and maybe whether the Taliban, um, how much they will have to compromise, or maybe the US to make a lasting peace. Um, Do you think it is possible to bring about change in the ideology of prominent political groups, even within a single lifetime? And do you know of any historical precedents where this has been achieved?
1: This is a great question. So yeah, fundamentally, I think that it is absolutely possible for political movements to change their strategies and their ideas, and there's lots of evidence for this, there 's a whole school of literature about the inclusion moderation theory, which has been very well applied to Islamists, which basically says if Islamists engage in a political process and make the necessary concessions, particularly giving up the use of violence that 's kind of the most important thing, uh, and accepting that um, a political process is the best solution to their to their contest to their to their project, uh, once they become Um, engaged in the political process the tendency is that they will have to moderate their views for all kinds of reasons if you look at the way the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has has um, changed, has developed over the last 20 or 30 years you absolutely see this Um, similarly with the Tunisian Islamists in fact most Islamist groups in the Arab world you see that they've made these sorts of changes where they've renounced I mean most of these groups were not violent to begin with but they renounced very kind of conservative hardline political visions to compromise with a much more pragmatic set of offerings. So the question for the Taliban is is the renunciation of violence because they're not at that stage yet. So how do you encourage them to renounce violence? What kind of offer uh, can you make to present them with the chance to be included in the political process? And how do you make sure that they don't, that that political process remains free and fair right that the Taliban don't come to kind of dominate or disrupt that political process and that's the big challenge about what's happening at the moment I mean it would seem to me the first step is to engage in discussions and negotiations with them right which is what's beginning the trouble is that the deal that they've come up with seems to me a bit fragile at the moment but you know let's see where it goes
2: and of course from the american perspective it's not the first time they've been involved with peace treaties as such so do you think uh american involvement in the war in afghanistan bears any parallels with american involvement perhaps in the vietnam war
1: yeah i do i think there are very strong parallels between both uh the war in afghanistan and the war in iraq with the, the war in vietnam i mean there are differences if you think about the number of american casualties um, the scale is much less in both afghanistan and iraq so a couple of thousand american troops were killed in combat in afghanistan about twice that in iraq about 4000 troops in vietnam we're talking about 58000 right so it's, the scale is quite different um, in terms of loss of life on the other side tens of thousands of afghans have been killed hundreds of thousands of iraqis have been killed so that is much more comparable to the number of vietnamese casualties from the from the vietnam war but i think in other ways there are lots of similarities All of these wars are morally ambiguous conflicts um, both in Vietnam and in Iraq Afghanistan the US didn't have much understanding about the countries that they were invading. Um, They were fighting insurgencies not traditional armies. Insurgencies tend to inflict very high civilian casualties. There was a very strange dislocation between the way political leaders Describe the conflict and the actual reality of the conflict on the ground as reported by the media, which is connected to the fact that public opinion turned against all of these wars quite quickly. And of course, the failure to defeat these insurgent forces, that's what's so striking, right? You have the most powerful army in the world unable to defeat these insurgent forces armed with Kalashnikovs and rocket-propelled grenades and improvised bombs and the profound damage that that does to America's international reputation, but also the lasting legacies it leads of of kind of unstable countries, countries with very weak political institutions, very limited state capacity, which is what you see in both Iraq and Afghanistan today. So, yeah, I mean, the echoes between all of these conflicts and the relationship with Vietnam seems very strong to me.
0: America's reputation has often been characterized As outwardly paternalistic on the grounds of moral obligation. We've seen this as we've just discussed Vietnam. Do you you think this is an approach America will continue or even can afford to continue in a post-coronavirus world?
1: Yeah so this is a very big question about whether coronavirus is profoundly going to change the world that we live in uh, or whether we're just going to kind of slip back into exactly where we were before when this is all over Uh, and the challenge in explaining this is that it coincides with this rather frightening moment of populism right that has got trump not just got trump elected but has shaped his response to the coronavirus epidemic pandemic which is to basically try and ignore it right at incredible cost in terms of american lives i mean i think you see that uh, you, you definitely saw under president obama a real um determination not to get sucked into conflicts like iraq and afghanistan again right not to repeat those kinds of failures which is why there was no american uh, intervention in the syrian conflict uh, dis- despite the, the red lines that he set and i think also we even with uh, trump too you see a great reluctance to uh, send troops send us troops into military invasions abroad right i think the 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 effect of the iraq and afghan wars domestically in the united states has been to make people very wary of supporting future conflicts like that particularly conflicts where the initial goals are very unclear and where they where troops ended up getting sucked into what they called quagmires right which is all because they don't have they have a military goal to topple saddam's regime or to somehow defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan, but there's no political goal that follows on from that in terms of reconstructing societies or leaving some kind of lasting stable political institutions. Um, I think there's a tremendous reluctance now on the part of the American population to get sucked into another kind of quagmire like that. But I don't know, let's just see where the coronavirus leaves us. I'm anxious about the very polarized relationship now between the United States and China uh, in particular. Um, so we need to see where that goes Um, these are uncertain times I think
2: that's a really nice place to kind of come to a conclusion and if I could ask just one last question uh, returning to the main theme for our podcast do you think history and politics should be promoted or is it more than it's worth
1: look I mean I think I think history and politics absolutely talk to each other all the time right Uh, the way our politics is shaped in modern society uh, draws very heavily from our understanding of history. So, um, so y- yeah, I think the I think drawing attention to the two and and bringing the two into conversation is kind of crucial to the way we ought to stand. We ought to understand the lives that we are living today. I mean, I think in academia, there's a real temptation to try to separate disciplines, right? And I I don't really I don't really buy this, uh, which is a, quite a sort of uh an unfashionable opinion. In, Academia, But I have an undergraduate degree in history. I have a, a doctorate in Oriental Studies. So kind of area studies of the Middle East and I teach uh, political science and international relations. So I, I think it's I think I think the, the richest discussions are happening happening on the edges of these disciplines.
2: Thank you very much, Rory. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have today. And thank you to everyone listening at home. Don't forget to look out for our next podcast as well as other events, articles, and videos on our website and Facebook. And please like our page for more content on history and politics. Thank you for listening.